Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Sarah and I have had a long-running conversation about a mutual friend's curiosity. He's wondered with us at different times, does God have a sense of humor? And I have for many years defended the position that he does not. Now, I know that runs contrary to a number of opinions out there. Some of you may have a different idea. My argument mostly has to do with the ideas behind the shape of a joke. Uh, This week, I researched a little bit about what makes a joke a good joke. And I discovered that experts in the field think there are a number of laughter triggers that a comedian might use in a joke. Let me give you just a handful of them. There were maybe as many as 15. I I don't have time for that. There was a joke. (laughs) First, and maybe most obvious, is the element of surprise. A good joke has, generally speaking, an element of surprise, something that's unexpected. Second, a a good joke might have superiority as something that goes into the joke, that is, superiority uh, over another individual. At someone's expense, often jokes have a, a, uh, a punchline at someone's expense. There might be embarrassment, the third thing there, a topic or situation that is awkward for someone. Or maybe there's incongruity, that is, two contrasting elements that bring confusion about something, that that could be a funny thing. Or coincidence. Coincidence is putting two ideas together that don't often connect. So I agree, jokes are funny because they surprise us in some way. They, they oftentimes come at the expense of someone else who makes a mistake or a joke twists or connects words or ideas to mean something else. Jokes, generally speaking, are sneaky. And that's not like God. And that's why I don't think God has a sense of humor. In each instance of a joke, As we understand it, at least as I've outlined it here for you, God is either incapable or it isn't in his character. So let me explain this a little bit. Because God knows all things, he wouldn't be surprised by anything, not anything in a joke. Nor would he make a joke at the expense of someone else, but would always have compassion upon that individual who made a mistake or an error of some kind. Social media is loaded with these kinds of hilarious mistakes that people make in everyday life. I I was watching something the other day on Facebook and the lady's going down a set of stairs and she says to her husband, be careful, it's slippery. And she carefully goes down and husband comes out, he's got his phone out and he just starts down the stairs and just completely obliterates himself. Wipes out on the the icy stairs, right? And I don't know, something wrong in me laughed. (laughs) I I thought it was funny, right? God wouldn't do that. I think finally God's character is one of integrity. So he wouldn't immediately try to fool someone. 
but he wants people to know the truth correctly. There's one story in the Bible, though, when I come to it, my ideas of a godly joke are challenged. And when I read this story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I'm challenged by my conclusions. Perhaps, after all, the Lord does have a sense of humor. Seeing this story from the Gospel of Luke, he seems to sneak up on two of the disciples who are returning from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus. Now, all the while, they're trying to make sense of the things that have happened there in those days. Verse 18. So it's an important moment for these disciples. I think it's an important moment for us, too. Because in this story, Luke invites us to learn a couple of important lessons. Like a good joke, Luke seems to invite us into a funny and amazing story. Are you ready for the joke? I want to talk about three things today. I want to speak of blindness, I want to speak of vision, and I want to speak of invitation. These things all make up the joke. So first, speaking about blindness. If you look at the the passage from the uh, bulletin there, first section of the story, verses 13 through 24, describe the challenges these disciples are having with regard to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Quite literally, Their eyes are blind from seeing him properly. They didn't recognize Jesus himself when he arrives and he walks along with them on the path. Verse 16 says as much. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus shows up and they can't see who he is. While they're returning from Jerusalem after the feast of the Passover, they're walking and talking together about everything that had taken place in Jerusalem over the past uh, few days as it related to Jesus, and they're trying to make sense of it all. They're confused, and they have all kinds of questions. Besides not recognizing Jesus physically, they don't understand the Hebrew Scripture. They're unable to make sense of what the prophets have said, and so Jesus in his invisibility to them, chides them for their lack of understanding. He pushes it a step further, though, and he calls this understanding a lack of faith. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Their blindness to him is one of misunderstanding and a lack of faith about what the Scriptures say about Jesus. And so they completely miss the point of the recent events in Jerusalem, that is, the death and resurrection of the Lord. It's simple for us, I think, in the 21st century, in the place that we're in, to look back at the story and and with some sense of arrogance and know-it-allness say, they are foolish. We never would have made the same kinds of mistakes that they made. We would have not missed the point of the death and resurrection. So we have to ask the question, what are the circumstances that bring about their blindness to the truth? Might these things bring or mirror our own blindness as well? What are those things that bring about their blindness? First, they're discouraged. We know this because when Jesus engages them, he asks about their conversation. He shows up while they're walking and as he engages them, What's going on? What are you talking about? They freeze. They stop in their tracks. They stop walking. They're incredulous about the question that Jesus is asking. They're stunned that he wouldn't know something about what has occurred. 
Luke also records in verse 17 that they're sad. Clopas gives a bit of insight into their state of mind when he answers Jesus' question, are you the only, they're speaking to Jesus here, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Luke continues after Jesus prompts, the, the man continues after Jesus prompts concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They think Jesus is dead, and they're discouraged about it. Not only are they discouraged about the events that have occurred, but they are without hope. And this is the second thing that causes their blindness. What they understood about Jesus was wrong, for the time being, anyway. They thought that he would redeem Israel, that he would bring an end to the Roman uh, oppression over the Hebrew people once and for all. They imagined Jesus, the Messiah, leading the people of Israel back into the glory days of King David. They understood Jesus to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word. That's what they say in verse 19. They had walked with him previous to this event, and they knew Jesus had the Spirit of God upon him, who was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to give sight to the blind. It's a quote from Luke 4, quoting from Isaiah 61. They knew he had only a week earlier ridden into Jerusalem on a colt to a, a huge crowd waving palms and royal proclamations from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They had experienced Jesus only a few days earlier in that way. And they're discouraged because they had hoped in the wrong thing. They had hoped that Jesus would be the king of the Jews and redeem Israel making them once again God's chosen people and his beloved nation. They were operating out of a faulty understanding. And they think Jesus is dead, and they're hopeless about it. Their discouragement and hopelessness doesn't end there. Confusion is added to the process, which increases their blindness. Oh, confusion is the third ingredient in the recipe of blindness. Verse 21 says, Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, the women of our company, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back to us saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Now, on the road to Emmaus, they communicate to Jesus that they don't know what to believe anymore. They're so confused. They leave Jerusalem. They head home discouraged and hopeless about their leader. An insult is added to injury for this little band of Jesus' followers they can't even give him a proper burial because his body is now missing. Where is he? Who took his body? Why would somebody want to take a dead body? They think Jesus is dead and they're confused about the events of the past. So these two sad disciples find themselves in a discouraged, hopeless, 
and confused and blind moment in their lives. That's a miserable place to be. When all seems lost, right seems wrong, everything is upside down, nothing makes sense anymore. Have you been there? I have. We may find ourselves there in that moment of blindness when we experience brokenness in a significant relationship. We might find ourselves feeling blind when we experience an unexpected job change or a forced move to a new place. Perhaps difficulty understanding what is true, what to believe about something or someone. Perhaps we have questions about God that don't seem to make sense like, is Jesus really able to deal with my sin? Does he really forgive me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe we find ourselves in that moment of blindness because of a significant illness. Or maybe it's difficulty in a class that you've poured your life and energy into over the course of the semester and you, you keep coming up with grades that aren't what you want. Maybe it's a little bigger than that, the death of a loved one. Or financial pressure that doesn't relent, depression, anxiety, struggles with a child, understanding your proper identity, any one of these things. And we find ourselves in these moments of blindness, Jesus steps in and offers new sight. So the second thing we need to consider today is, how do we see Jesus? We need right vision. What brings right vision? Jesus does. The resurrected Jesus. So in this story, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus undoes all of the things that have caused their blindness. Take a look at that. He removes their discouragement by interpreting the scripture about the Messiah. And he points them to the true word of God. He points them to himself. He offers them hope through the word of God about himself. And he clears up their confusion by outlining the word of God, explaining the things that have occurred. Again, Jesus first chastises these two disciples a bit. He knows that while he was alive and with his disciples, he had given them enough to understand what was going on. He taught them in word and deed, and it was enough to understand what had occurred. And so he says, you foolish ones, slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, all of the scripture points to Jesus. The law and the prophets. So, what is this word that brings new sight? It's Jesus. Now, depending on the Old Testament scholar that you read, there are anywhere between 200 and 400 prophecies that are fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus. They're widely about what each um, entails, ranging from his birth to life to his ministry to his death and resurrection. They, those prophecies about the Messiah include all of those topics. And the very first prophecy that's found about Jesus in the Bible is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Third chapter of the Bible. 
God warns the serpent about the future Messiah who will crush his head. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the work of Jesus on the cross is in view all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. For in the same moment that Satan bruises the heel of God, God crushes Satan and the consequences of sin. He is the one who will make everything right that has been flawed through sin in the Garden of Eden. That's the very first prophecy. I'm not going to cover all 458 of them, but I'll cover a handful of them so you can see. And as I read through some of these prophecies, I hope you are overwhelmed by the incredible, sovereign, organized way that God has established his word through history. Listen to some of these prophecies. I'm sure that when Jesus was sharing with with his disciples on his walk to Emmaus, he pointed out the prophecies about his birth, that he would be born from a virgin. It's Isaiah 7. That he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5. That the Messiah would come from the line of Jacob. Numbers 24. He would come from the line of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 11, that he would come from the line of David, Jeremiah 23, that Jesus would be worshipped and given gifts at his birth, Psalm 72, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, Genesis 22. Jesus would have also mentioned the prophecies about his life, reminding them of his words and his actions. Jesus would that Jesus would teach using parables. That's mentioned in Psalm 78. That Jesus' kingdom would be eternal. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The ministry of Jesus would begin in Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9. That Jesus' ministry would be preceded by a voice calling out in the wilderness, describing John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40. Jesus would be anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. It's Isaiah 61. The king would come riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9. Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. I'm also certain that Jesus would have pointed out the prophecies of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus would be the Passover lamb, Exodus chapter 12. None of Jesus' bones would be broken, Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. Jesus would die and pour out his blood for the atonement of sins, Leviticus 17. That Jesus would be high and lifted up, Numbers 21. That he would be mocked, Psalm 22. That Jesus' mouth would be dry, Psalm 22 again. And he'd be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69. Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22. That Jesus would commit his spirit to God, Psalm 31. Jesus would be abandoned, rather, he would not be abandoned to decay, Psalm 16. That Jesus would not be forsaken, Psalm 22. And he would be delivered from the mouth of the lion. He'd be delivered from the mouth of Satan. Again, Psalm 22. Now, I did a little bit of research too this week because I was curious and I asked Google this question. Came up with all kinds of fantastic answers. What are the, what's the probability of all of the prophecies about the Messiah coming true in one person. Something along those lines. 
I came up with a really interesting article. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But one uh, scholar, biblical scholar at Westmont University got his students to work on some of this and they decided they were going to only examine eight different prophecies. Only eight. There are, again, as I've mentioned, upwards of 458 different prophecies. And I've, I've just, I don't know, I've read maybe 15 or 20 of them to you already. This scholar at Westmont picks eight. And they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight of those prophecies was one in ten to the 17th. In other words, it's one in 10 with 17 zeros following. That's the likelihood of one person fulfilling those eight prophecies. Now, I just read 15 of those to you. The numbers go crazy, like almost unable to pay attention to. Uh, Somebody said, if we take that number one in 10 to the 17th, and we made for every one of those possibilities a sil- silver dollar and made, lay those silver dollars stacked up on the face of the state of Texas. Texas, you know, the Texans, they all say everything's bigger. And Texas is big. If we added all those silver dollars up, they would cover the entire state of Texas to two feet deep, almost to your knee. And then we would take a blindfolded individual and say, now you've got to pick the one coin in all of the state of Texas. Travel wherever you want. You know, you can drive 60 miles an hour from one edge of Texas to the other. It takes about six hours to do that. 24 inches deep. Pick that one coin. They, they say that basically that's like all of the prophecies of Jesus coming true in the Old Testament, coming true in one man, Jesus, the Messiah. This is significant. So Jesus instructs his fellow hikers that day that they ought not be discouraged or hopeless or confused because his life is before them in word and deed. But their blindness doesn't go away yet. It isn't until the joke is complete that they see properly and they realize all that Jesus has been teaching them. So I'm going to do something that perhaps no good preacher ever does. I'm going to ask you to get your cell phones out. (laughs) See, it's not a joke. (laughs) Pull your cell phones out, and I want you to Google search, whatever search engine you have, Google search Supper at Emmaus Caravaggio. You come up with one of two pictures. So I want that picture in front of you. We don't have a screen. I would maybe put it up somewhere. But maybe you've seen those pictures before. Supper at Emmaus, Caravaggio. Contemplate this moment in Scripture as you examine either of those two Caravaggio paintings. The first one was painted in 1601. That's the more famous of the two. The second is painted in 1606. It's a little bit darker. And if you compare the two, you can see that 1606 painting has got a lot of black and browns on it. It's a very dark picture. Not dark in terms of like evil, but dark in color. Just keep that picture in front of you, you for a little bit. After Jesus completes the talk and walk with these disciples, he pretends to pass on by their stopping place. It is only once they convince Jesus to stay with him that he agrees and joins them for dinner. 
And at dinner, he takes the seat of honor where it would be customary to pray for the meal. And as he does, their eyes are opened and they realize who has been with them those many miles, explaining the scripture so that their hearts burned within their chests. Verse 32, that's how they describe it. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scripture? I don't think it's safe to say that this is a replication of the Passover meal because these two disciples likely were not at the Passover meal with Jesus a few days earlier. The 12 were with Jesus. But the habit and manner in which Jesus offers thanks opens their eyes. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and he gave it to them. Vision, true vision is restored. And here comes the punchline. In three, two, one, he's gone. Just like that. Vanished from their sight. <laughs> Did you catch the joke? It comes in that moment of breaking bread with them after he outlines the scripture pointing the passion narrative to himself. Word and deed are tied up together in Jesus. Their surprise had to be overwhelming. And one hilarious moment when everything is explained, cleared up, made visible, understood, and hopeful, he's gone. Poof. I think even in this moment, he's teaching and getting his disciples ready to follow him without his physical presence. So to beg the question, what is required to see the Lord? The words and deeds of Jesus. These disciples said it themselves earlier in verse 19. This was a prophet who is mighty in deed and word. And like those disciples, we must be honest in our discouragement. Cautious about our misguided hopes. We need to seek clarity in our confusion. We need to set aside individual ideas of Jesus and misunderstandings about him and allow Jesus and him alone to burn truth into our hearts through his word and deed in our lives. So there's one more thing that's crucial to finally seeing the Lord. And this is simply an invitation. Jesus never pushes himself upon us. He doesn't do it here on this hike. He pretends that he's going to pass by Emmaus. He acts as if he's going to go on farther, verse 28. And the invitation made to the Lord here is essential for them to see him. Had these disciples not urged him strongly, I think they would have missed out on seeing Jesus. They would have missed the greatest joke ever told, seeing the one who had so much promise, who ended on a bloody cross under the curse of God and was buried only to be raised to new life on the third day, defeating death as the scripture foretold. Without their invitation for Jesus to join them for dinner, they would have missed Jesus. So what invitation do you need to make to Jesus tonight? What place of discouragement are you in? What hopelessness are you experiencing? What lack of understanding about God do you have? Where do you need Jesus to show up and alleviate those pains and difficulties? The word that you need to hear tonight, I think, is the same word that those disciples needed to hear, that God is in control, 
and that he has worked out your salvation from the beginning of time in Jesus. The deed of God that you need to see today is the same as it was for those disciples, that the risen one has endured crucifixion, that he's taken on the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. He put it upon himself in death, and he is raised to new and eternal life. And in a minute, we're going to reenact that story in the sacrament at Eucharist. Come to the table tonight to experience the risen Lord. Jesus is already present in the word proclaimed through the reading and hearing of the word preached. He's present in the breaking of bread as we remember his death and resurrection life, infusing his life with ours. His grace-filled presence is for you tonight. I encourage you to invite the risen Lord into your life to speak to you, to release you from discouragement, to offer you hope, to heal, to explain his life, to strengthen your faith, to instruct your hearts in his way and heal your woundedness. Jesus is able to do this now as he did it then. Come, Lord Jesus, meet us where we are. Alleluia. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Oh, yeah. They Amen. took you.